Hello, I'm Rabbi Avi Green. And I'm Dr. Akiva Daum. And, and welcome, welcome to Interesting, Interesting Questions. I am a rabbi with ordination from Yeshiva University and a doctorate in education. I have a medical degree with specialization in general and addiction psychiatry. In this podcast, we will seek to take different questions that come up in the Torah and evaluate them from a psychological standpoint as well as a religious standpoint. Please note that in many of these situations, we will be looking at things that may be viewed as controversial. It is specifically to bring about questions that many people have had and bring in to light different levels of evaluation and it'll get people to think about things in a different way. Okay, so Akiva, I want to talk about lying, because there seems to be an awful lot of lying that happens in Parshat Toldot and Parshat Vayetze. We have Yaakov, I'm going to use the word lying, right, knowing that that's a loaded word, but I'm going to use the word lying to Yitzchak about being Esav in order to receive the bracha, and then he heads down in this week's Parsha of Vayetze to live with Lavan, and he ends up um, being lied to, and lying, and we're going to talk about different kinds of lying that might have happened, um, whether it's lie of omission, um, or, or other types of lies that uh, seem to happen in, in this week's Parsha. So, let's start with why do we lie? I think you kind of pointed out something that was really important is that there's a lot of different kinds of lying and while I'm not generally a fan of euphemisms I do think that in some regards referring to non-truths adjustments of reality distortions of facts I think they all do fall into that umbrella term of lying but I think they are more specific and the short answer is, is we lie because we think many times it'll, it's easier, right? We think it's easier because it gets us out of trouble, keeps us out of trouble, gives someone an answer they want to hear, uh, gives us a short answer without an explanation, or it's sometimes it's just because we don't care enough to give a more specific answer. So there's a lot of different reasons why we fall under the term of the umbrella term of lying. And, and why don't we start with some of the simpler ones first, right? So you mentioned about a lie of omission, a lie of just leaving out the information. So, so when I think of that, I think about the, you know, not sharing the specifics of facts. Um, and, and sometimes we call that lying, and sometimes it's a known thing. For example, if somebody asks me about how my day was, there's only so much I can share if it's a work day. I can't discuss with them the patients I've spoken to or the things that we've talked about. I can't tell them if I'm treating someone that they know. I, I can't share any of that. Is that a lie? Or is that me, you know, simply being respectful of the laws that I'm bound by? I think you can probably look at it both ways. However, I was going to say, and for some of us, we omit things because our day is just boring. So nobody needs to know how many times I went and washed my hands or got a cup of coffee. Well, admittedly, some days my days are boring as well. Um, But so that may fall under the idea of lying. Then 
maybe we take it a step further. Maybe somebody says, how you doing? You say, oh, I'm just fine. Right? And, um, and you're not really fine, but we say we're fine because the answer is much more convenient, much more concise. Correct. Correct. And oftentimes I do have to more or less train people out of that when I'm asking them that question because, of course, as a psychiatrist, I say, how are you doing? And they say, I'm good. Well, that's fantastic, but I actually want to know. Uh, it's part of the part of the duties of the job, um, and so you know, training people to share that information is important. But a lot of people they ask the question because it's for some reason even though it's more words easier than just saying hi, and or it falls off the tongue. It's a natural kind of process, and nobody wants to hear it. The you know the person you're walking by either on the way to Shul or at the grocery store, says, hey, long time, how's it going? They don't necessarily actually want to hear the answer. Or you may not want to share the answer. In either case, is that a lie? Again, I suppose it theoretically falls under the umbrella. But is it just more convenient? Is it more reasonable? Is it more appropriate? Right? Sometimes lies like that are simply more appropriate. There's not everything that everybody needs to know about what's going on in your world, contrary to what people on social media believe. So, so those are two things that I think of. And then, you know, if we take it a step further, maybe at that point we have the, the white lies. The lies where, you know, I think we were talking earlier and it was that question of, well, when, when your significant other ha- asks you how they look in their, in their particular attire, you know, does this make my, does this make my tuchas look big? Does this, you know... And the correct not... answer is always, honey, you look fantastic in anything you wear. Right. And, and not, to, not to pick men or women, there's also the, is this okay to wear? Um, you know, generally speaking, the answer is always no, it's not okay to wear, get something else on. As, as I regularly hear. Um, but, but either way, right, like that's, those are statements where, again, it's a question, you know. You, you know the person asking you the question. So you know whether or not it's something that they actually want to hear the truth and they actually want to hear the answer or if they just want you to reassure them because maybe they're having a bad day and they're feeling a little less confident. And in which case, it's not helpful to decrease their level of confidence even further to say, no, honey, you know what? You look swollen today, and I think everything's going to make your butt look terrible. Uh, not necessarily so helpful, right? And, and nor is it the goal to hurt that person's feelings because they're just not having a good day. So is that okay to do? Again, it depends on the relationship. It depends on what the other person has determined they want to hear in that relationship because some people would be like, absolutely not. If I don't look good, tell me that because it's important to me. Other people would say, you're supposed to just say I look beautiful and move on. So that's very particular to that relationship. Again, falls under the umbrella of maybe lying, but not necessarily a devious move. So I think this is a good place to jump in and talk about what the Gemara says. And the Gemara says there are certain times when you're actually allowed to lie, right? Um, and, and they're not talking about lies of omission. They're talking about uh, uh, lies of, uh, of, I don't know what the forward, right? It's not, it's not commission. It's something else. But, but when you're lying, that you're allowed to say 
uh, lies for the sake of humility and modesty. You're allowed to lie in terms of if someone asks you, uh, I, don't, I don't know why they would be asking, but is tonight the night that your wife goes to the mikvah, right? That you and your, your wife will be uh, intimate. You're allowed to lie about whether it is not that night, right? Um, <clears throat> and you're allowed to lie to keep someone from being injured. And so in, in those particular cases, the Gemara uh, lists them. But I think that those can be categories in some ways. Um, and then it also gives exceptions to those exceptions, right? There are times when you should not lie, and one of those that is important from my perspective is when we're teaching children and, and talking to children. And sometimes, right, we, we want to spare children from certain hard truths, um, but it is important not to lie to them. There are times where it's okay to say, this is not for us to talk about here, or this is not for us to talk about now, or we can talk about this when you're older, but I think that's far better than lying to them. And so the idea of, you know, some of the popular ideas in American culture, like the stork, um, or the, uh, the man in the red suit who comes down the chimney to deliver presents, can actually be very um, problematic, not just for Jewish children, but for children in general. And it's very, it's very, you bring that up, but uh, also even in, you know, in medicine, right? So obviously we're encouraged not to lie. Now, that being said, everybody thinks of the Hippocratic Oath, right? And the truth is, is most physicians don't take the pure Hippocratic Oath anymore. And I will tell you that if you study some of what Hippocrates suggested, one of those things was is tell the patient you can get them better even if you can't, which would be a lie. And in this day and age, it would be considered to be a really big one, right? So, so we don't do that. And however, on the other hand, one of the interesting things in psychiatry is that when it comes to a patient suffering with dementia, one of the things that we are taught is don't correct the individual uh, when they are truly in that stage where they are not having lucid moments anymore. They are not having the clarity and, you know, they bring up something like about their spouse who we may know has passed away 10 years ago. What service does it do to them to say, no, no, don't you remember? They're dead. It's not helpful. And in fact, it can be only hurtful. So that may be a situation, in fact, where we're actually told, you know what, don't correct them. Maybe we don't lie to them directly, but it certainly falls in that umbrella of an omission of correction, an omission of telling them the actuality of what's going on. It doesn't serve to help them, though. So we're very clear on all it's going to do is upset them, agitate them, possibly list, increase the chances that there will be some kind of uh, need for a behavioral or a chemical uh, treatment because sometimes people in that stage do have significant difficulty controlling their behaviors. And so, again, if all we're going to do is hurt them, why do that? So, so there are certain times where absolutely it's, it's appropriate. And I think to, to go further with what you were saying about the stork and the, you know, the man in the chimney, which um, I will go on record saying sounds scarier than anything uh, coming from the background I have, and I'm sure the background you have too, someone 
climbing into your house and uh, anywho um, so another situation where that might come up is whether or not it's an appropriate time and I think that's what you were alluding to is that you know when is it an appropriate time to have a certain type of discussion with your children and how much information do you share with them at that time we learned later on a perfect example that I can think of off the top of my head we learned early in elementary school right about how the the pilgrims came to this country this country being the United States in case you're listening from another country and they met the Native Americans and there was a feast and and there was wonderful things and of course we've we've since learned that there there may have been some of that but the the truth is is that what happened and what ensued afterwards is not something that anyone should be proud of um, we don't bring that up we don't talk about that to our elementary school children later on we learn it we learn it because it's important for us to learn how you treat other people and how you don't treat other people uh, but we share that information in a timely way and such that the the child can understand the ramifications of behaviors versus the the benefits of if somebody needs something you help them which is also a wonderful message to teach them early on yeah one of the one of the questions I often get asked as an educator is that um, students will lose a grandparent because um, that's the age when it happens and depending on the age of the student depending on the age of the child people will ask me what should we or shouldn't we tell our our children our little ones about the fact that grandma or grandpa or even great-grandma or great-grandpa passed away. Um, and there is that fine line between being honest and telling them, you know, grandpa passed away or, or great-grandpa passed away and we're going to have a funeral for them. Um, and they are in heaven, they're in Shemaim, um, as opposed to going into some of the details Right? especially medical details, that may be uh, traumatizing for a young child. Or even just terrifying. Right. Uh, and then, of course, we have the, the antithesis of that sometimes with, with addiction. When should I have the conversation with my child about alcohol and drugs? A lot of times people get concerned when I give them that answer. Um, but as a public service announcement, I will point out that many of the individuals that I work with started using substances in their single-digit years, which I imagine can be very terrifying for some of our listeners. It's certainly terrifying for, I think, everyone. However, it kind of goes to show you when should you have those conversations? Probably pretty early on. Now, of course, they don't need to be the whole smattering of the information. And, and of course, again... It wouldn't be, and, we, and we've seen this repeatedly, that the scare tactics oftentimes backfire, right? Telling someone that, well, if you do this, if you smoke marijuana, you'll die. Well, then when they smoke marijuana and they don't die, then they say, what else did they lie to me about? Which is never something you want your child wondering when they certainly are high on cannabis. Uh, so, again... Those are all a subset of lies that I would say probably fall into the varying levels of non-nefarious. And then, of course, we have lies that are de 
directly correlated with, let me get myself out of trouble. Did you do this? Did you hit this car? Did you smash this window? Nope, wasn't me. And we all know how that goes. And the question is, is where does that serve to help us? I think many times people feel that it serves us in the immediate. Gets me out of trouble in that moment. But I'm sure we can all look at our pasts and think about how many times that has completely backfired on us. Some kind of terrible consequence ensued once it, found, it came to, to light that that wasn't the truth. And so I think in those situations, it's important to accept responsibility and learn that, and, and I think many of us do learn that as we become more mature, accepting responsibility oftentimes does mitigate the consequences because many times the consequences build and build and build. And of course, we also know that the uh, the negatives and the problems that sometimes we feel the need to not tell the truth about are usually a bigger deal as we get older. You know, did you, did you send in the mortgage payment? Oh yeah, sure. Uh, that's a big deal. I'm led to believe if you don't. So, so that becomes a big problem for multitude of reasons. And so I think many of us at some point learn oh, maybe I shouldn't lie about this because it's going to be a bigger problem if I don't. And I think some of us still sometimes struggle with that, depending on the level of the question. And then, of course, we have those lies that maybe are just meant to be hurtful. Unfortunately, those exist as well. We have people who will say things just out of spite or or to harm someone. And then the question comes, well, sometimes there's truths that you share that are also hurtful and come out of spite as well. So I guess part of that lesson would be is being mindful of what you say in general. And I guess that's really the, the crooks of the matter with this entire statement, this entire question of, you know, what is lying and, and when is it okay and when is it not and when do you do this is thinking truly about what you are saying, what it means that you're saying and what message you're trying to convey. Because if the message that you're trying to convey is not stated in the words that you use, then that's meaningful. And so I would ask you where you put those lies that, that are for financial gain. In other words, I, I suppose they could go in multiple categories, right? If, if uh, you gave the cashier $5, but the cashier thought you gave them 10 and gives you back more change than even the, the, the amount you gave them, right? And you don't say anything, that's an alive omission. If you are, right, um, lying in business to try and drum up business and say, yeah, yeah, I've got a ton of, uh, of uh, clients and, and uh, don't worry, we're used to handling this kind of business even though this is the first time you're handling that kind of business, that could be a different type of lie. Um, and there can even be the type of lie that says, hey, um, I don't want to badmouth my, my competition, but if you go to them, there's no way you're going to get what you want or need. Right? Um, and so, uh, but for the most part, right? I mean, we've, we've 
you and I are of an age where we have lived through Bernie Madoff and certain others who have definitely um, popularized fraud to a certain extent. Um, where would you put those? I think those in many ways are societal, right? So let's take, for example, the, the first, exa- the first uh, piece, the cashier. So, all right, they give you extra change. Great, you have extra extra money in your pocket. Now, what happens when that cashier at the end of the shift counts out their drawer and they're a couple dollars short? Some companies have a policy, will they terminate you? So, for the sake of getting a couple extra dollars, have you cost someone their entire job? Or at the very least, they have to take it out of their own pocket to make up the difference. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of difficulties there and and whether it's you know just doing the right thing not wanting to have that on your conscience uh, whether you have a belief in karma or what have you the truth is is that I think what we do to each other as a society is very meaningful and truly affects how we hold ourselves there are people in this world and in the and and in the various communities where if they say something, you know that what they said was, you know, that's what it was. No questions. No questions need to be asked. No challenges need to be made. Did you hit this car? No. And you know that that's the truth because you have no reason to question. And that person has never given a reason to question. And I think that's very important. I think that's something that everybody does and and would benefit if they don't to strive for is to have that kind of value to their name because having that I don't think that ever leaves you and I don't know much about what happens in Alamaba but I would argue that that's probably something that is of value there too Um, something where again if you're in the situation where maybe it's a business thing maybe it's a you know I've had plenty of people, I can speak to my own professional career, where I've had plenty of people where they are talking to me and they ask me a question. Do you know how much people appreciate when you say, I don't know? How much they, more they respect that than you just making up an answer? I have to say that it pays off multiple times for me to say, you know what? I don't know. I don't know what that is, but, you, but I'm going to look into it and I'm going to figure it out. And I have to believe that in a situation where someone is your first kind of client, being able to look them in the eye and say, you know what, I don't have any experience with this. I have resources to be able to find out what to do. And if you feel like I'm not a good fit for you, I'm happy to make a recommendation of someone else who can be helpful. I think people respect that more. And whereas it may not turn into that business agreement for there, people will remember that. And they'll speak about it and they'll say, oh, you know what? I met, this, I met this business person and they were very honest and they looked at me in the face and said, you know, I don't know how to do that. Um, you should go to them because they seem to really know about your thing. And the idea that that would turn into multitudes of business instead of potentially harming your name for lying to them and harming them for not giving them the help that they need... Uh, I can't even think of a reason not to uh, go that route. So, so I really do think that 
and I, and I know this sounds cliche, but I think honesty is the best policy because it really leads to, in those community reasons and community and societal areas, an opportunity to show truly who you are and uh, remove any question of what that means. Yeah, the Gemara talks about Keter Shem Tov, the crown of a good name, right? Essentially your reputation being a crown that sits upon your head and that uh, it is one of those things that, you know, you, you, it is one of the few things in life that might actually be binary. You have a positive reputation or a negative reputation. So polish your crowns. Avi, I think that one of the things that this Parsha brings up is, so Yaakov gets married and married and married and married. He has two wives, two concubines, or we can say four wives. He ends up at the end of the Parsha with six children. He's living on a compound with his father-in-law. He's working for his father-in-law. There's a lot of family drama, a lot of jealousy back and forth between the the sisters, the two the two wives, the two main wives, if I can say that. Um, there's we don't get to it yet, but we'll we'll see later on jealousy between children. There's there's a lot of question that I have about Shalombait, and we have Yaakov who clearly he's a provider. He takes care of his family. I don't think anybody has any question for that. He works hard. He provides for his family. But where is his responsibility as far as the rest of it? Where is his responsibility to raise the children, to make sure that, in this case, I guess, his wives are getting along with each other, uh, dispelling and decreasing any drama, making sure that he's taking care to be, I guess, respectful and... Uh, appropriate with his in-laws, basically following the rules and making sure that there's peace within the home. What are his responsibilities with this? Either throw us all under the bus or give us all some hope that maybe we can get off the hook. Um, so I'm going to say, I, I think actually Yaakov does a pretty good job. We We don't see that he's that he's able to do everything, and I think the reality is, right, we are parents living in a world where we can't do everything, and we have a lot more um, shortcuts than they did back then, Um, and let's be honest, I don't know about you, but I certainly don't know what it means to live with four wives. One is keeping me plenty busy. Rest assured, for all listeners, I do not know what it is to have four <laughs> wives. So, um, I think that, that, to a certain extent, what we see Yaakov doing is trying to live life in a somewhat normal fashion, um, you know, and, and there's this concept of happy wife, happy life, and I think he's trying to make each of them happy in their own way, Right? So Leah wants to have children, and sure enough, she has children. Rachel wants to have children, and he says, is it up to me? There's nothing I can do about it, right? But 
And at a certain point, Rachel trades a night with Yaakov in exchange for some red flowers that Ruvain has collected. And Yaakov goes along with that. Um, I think when it comes to family life, he's sort of a, I'm going to go with the flow and I'm going to go along with whatever's happening at home. Because if I'm a shepherd, I'm probably out of the house not just many days, but many nights as well. And so when I get home, right, and anybody who has worked many nights knows when dad comes home and that's not part of the routine, it can upend the entire household. And that's not healthy for kids and that's not healthy for the household. So if it's a one-and-done one and sort of special night, great. But if that's going to be the case on a regular basis, it's a problem. So I think that the idea that he, you know, he sort of tried to go along when he was home um, is... is doing the best you can. In terms of living on the compound and living with his father-in-law, again, he lives there for close to 21 years. And I think despite some of the things that um, Lavan does to him, with him, um, and despite some of the other things, he seems to be respectful of him in general. Um, there may be a little bit of an abruptness when he leaves at the end, but I think otherwise... He does try to treat everyone with respect, including his wives. Um, he does care very much about his children and, and his family. Um, and I think we will see that even further as we go into later Parshiot. So then the follow-up to that would be is, here we have a man who's a shepherd. What if he had shepherded his family a little more? Instead of going with the flow... Would it have been beneficial for him to have maybe taken a little more charge, done a little bit more organizing? Would it have made things better? Maybe it would have helped with the kids more? Or maybe maybe it would have helped with his wives all feeling cared for and loved? Or was he kind of just allowing the passenger role and saying, oh, I go home with you tonight? Okay, dear. And maybe that wasn't helpful. Maybe Maybe that's why jealousy and negativity ensued between the wives, because we know that it didn't get any better, it didn't go away. So I'm going to say, I think the challenge that Yaakov may have faced is the same challenge that most of us face. You can't have experience until you have the experience. So as he lives through the first 14 years, being the provider, right, he's very concerned about I have all these children, I have a big family, how am I going to provide for them? And eventually he figures that out, and he's able to do that. Then, when, we, when he leaves Lavan's house, and his, his uh, financial stability is more or less insured, then we see him taking a much bigger role. Now, it's also right around that time that Rachel passes, but we see him taking more of a role in terms of directing the household in terms of um, trying to direct the children. And in some cases, he has success with that, but more often than not, he really does not. Um, and so I'm not sure that his taking a greater role earlier on would have led to more success. In fact, right, usually when you have one of the things that my wife and I did when we first got married, was go to a marriage um, class, right, where they taught you each session was about a different thing. And one of the things they talked about was that in each area, 
there has to be a lead and a follower, right? If you both try to be leads, you end up going in the opposite directions. And they encourage couples to talk about, okay, and I'll use one very simple example, financials, right? Who's going to be in charge of the financials and make sure that bills are paid? Um, and it doesn't mean the other person doesn't know anything about it, and it doesn't mean that the other person has no input or doesn't have access to them. It simply means that one person is taking primary responsibility for that. And it can be the male or it can be the female, right? In, in, I would say the same thing can be true about raising children. There has to be one person who is the lead and one person who is um, the follow, in the sense that, you know, a kid is going to play the game of mommy-daddy, right? Where they can say, Mom, can I do X, Y, and Z? Right? And Mom will say, No, honey, it's time to get ready for bed. You go to Dad. Dad, can I do X, Y, and Z? And the right answer is, What did Mom just tell you? Right? Or go ask your mom, right? If Mom is the lead. Alternatively, if Dad's the lead, then... You know, you have to back each other up because we know that if there's conflicting communication there, it's just going to get into greater and greater problem and and that will drive a wedge between them, right? That communication has to be along the same path whenever ideally possible. So I think Yaakov was taking the follower approach in terms of child rearing and in terms of the household in large part because he wasn't there and he was very focused on being a good provider in those first 14 years of marriage. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm going to let him off the hook in terms of being home to do whatever it was he might have need to do. Avi and Chaye, Sarah, I gave you the challenge about the idea that maybe... Levan was not such a such a terrible guy, and maybe we paint him in an unfair light. And at that time, we said, "Well, we'll get to it." So, so now let's we're get here. To it. Yeah, and and I guess in reading the actual text, we still have, for the most part, he doesn't come off as so terrible, with the exception of the of the issues with with payment, which. Okay, I will say, certainly, it's in the text, there are issues. Not details, but the text says there are issues, so okay, so we'll go with there are issues there. However, the rest of this, we have, and, and okay, fine, so, so yeah, so one could argue about the fact that he lied about the daughter. He, he said he would give Rachel, he gave Leah. Now, was that him lying to be... Hurtful. We talked about this earlier. Was it him lying to be hurtful, or was it him lying to protect the honor of his eldest daughter? Yes, there might have been better ways to handle it. However, I don't think it's necessarily the scoundrel that we play him up to be. And later on in the Parsha, when they, they finally leave Levan's house, they, they leave... And he chases them down, and he comes to them. He rummages through their things, looking for items that were stolen. We would have the suggestion that it was inappropriate for him to rub, rummage through their things, and yet we know that 
there were items that, in fact, were stolen. So he wasn't wrong in that regard. And he says, you would take my family from me without letting me say goodbye. And at the end, what happens? He kisses them goodbye. He says his goodbye, and he never sees them again. So really, we have this man who his sister was taken away. Presumably, he never sees again. And then he has his daughters taken away, who, again, he never sees again. He, he wanted an opportunity to say goodbye. So I guess here's the challenge, here's the question. Why do we, where do we get that he was so terrible? Again, maybe not a, man, maybe not a perfect person. Fine. But there's a big line between scoundrel and mensch that we had to leap to get all the way to scoundrel, which is really, we, we paint him in such a villainous light. Is that fair? Is that reasonable? Is that appropriate? So I think a lot of that comes from the Midrash. And if we're going to talk about Lavan in the Midrash, I want to talk about Esav in the Midrash as well, because Esav also gets villainized even more than Lavan. And I think this goes to my philosophy on the purpose of Midrash. So we're going to get on that soapbox for the moment. For me, for many years, I had difficulty with Midrash, right? There's a famous saying that uh, if you believe everything that's in it, you're a fool. And if you believe none of it, then you're also a fool. But at the end of the day, I have come to a place in my learning and in my understanding where I believe Midrash was really Chazal, our rabbis, trying to create stories that were morality tales, right? They are trying to teach us something using the figures that are in the Torah, figures that we would be um, very, very familiar with, right? And turning them into archetypes that they can then use within a storyline. And so Lavan becomes the scoundrel businessman, right? He's the one who cheats on his taxes. He's the one who, um, you know, says he's going to pay you X, but really pays you Y. And so within those stories, that's who Lavan becomes. And we, on in my opinion, unfortunately, have sometimes taught those midrashim as facts to our children, and therefore they become superimposed onto the text itself. And now we only read the text with those superimposed midrashim on top of them, and that archetype of Lavan as the, as the business scoundrel laid on top of every time we talk about him. Esav has it even worse, because Esav is marked as a Russia. And uh, I will say that one um, photocopy that came home this week had Yaakov on one side and Esav on the other from a particular school. And on one side where it had Yaakov, it had all sorts of wonderful things that were there. And on the side of Esav, it had all sorts of weapons and and. I guess it's hard to call them terrible things, but one of them was a gun. And I certainly can't imagine Asaph having a gun. He did not live at a time when they existed. No, in fact, he was a hunter, and you didn't hunt with your bare hands, or you didn't come back home. Correct. Um, and so this idea of, of Asaph being, you know, a bad guy, a killer, right? All of that comes from the Midrash. And layer on top of that, that... If you look historically, Asab, who is definitely connected with the color red, 
right? Because he drinks this or eats this red porridge, ha'adom ha'adom azeh, right? That, that Yaakov trades him for the birthright. Um, that color gets connected with Rome. And so the rabbis who are living dur- during certain periods of Rome and cannot speak of Rome in ill fashion because that might lead to their deaths, use Esav as the nod, nod, wink, wink that they are referring to Rome. And so all of these terrible things that get attributed to Esav, I'm not saying he was a perfect person or a great guy, but I am saying that the Midrash lays, again, this archetype of a very violent, very um, very evil, right? We call him Esav HaRasha, Esav the evil, right? Um, gets layered on top of who Esav was. And so I think we need to think carefully both about how we teach Midrash, how we understand Midrash, and how we apply it to our own understanding of, of Chumash. Um, because if we accept everything that's in the Midrash as being the same as the words that are in the Torah, we are being fools to try to understand it. But if we also say that we are not going to try to learn the morals and the lessons that the rabbis were trying to teach us, then we are fools for not listening to them as well. So I guess what you're saying is, when it comes to Levan, it wasn't black or white. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to reach us, you can reach us at iqdiscuss at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you and responding. We've talked about jealousy and the problems with jealousy before, but I think that... I think we should stop right here. Did we not talk about jealousy?